You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And perhaps particularly because I myself am such an admitted economic illiterate, it pleases me no end that Eduardo Porter, who writes the economic scene column for the New York Times, joins me here today. Now, formerly, my guest was a member of the Times editorial board, where he wrote about business, economics, and a mix of other matters related to the dismal science that intrigued me, but often surpassed my pay grade in just plain comprehension, though surely not in interest. He is the author, too, of Penguin's The Price of Everything. Now, we record this conversation just two days after the 2012 presidential election, and but a week after my guest titled a New York Times piece, At the Polls, Choose Your Capitalism. And I want to ask him both what he meant by that, and without interfering with his electoral choice, what choice he would make. Thanks for joining me, but I, I have to ask you that question. Well, thanks for having me. Well, first, what I meant, um, uh, the United States has chosen a particular form of engaging in capitalism in the, with the world, with globalization, with technology, that is fairly unique, fairly different from that of many other developed countries in Europe, Japan, Australia, Canada. And this is a choice that I think came up in this election in kind of like a condensed, very specific form, because you had one candidate that was proposing perhaps something more like what I would characterize the road that we have taken over the past 30 years, which was a Republican Mitt Romney who was proposing uh, um, a less government in our society, a smaller government that did fewer things, that entailed and therefore lower taxes and more you know, private initiative. At least that was a way that I think he couched much of his, his proposition as a president in terms of the economy. And on the other hand, President Obama was suggesting more of what, you know, and his critics would say this actually, with more of the, the choices that other social democracies have, have made, which is where the government has, is, is believed to have a substantial role to play in addressing, you know, many of our social ills and dysfunctions, you know, from being it, uh, from offering universal health care to more extended unemployment insurance. I mean, so this, this kind of like proposition came forth in this election, but it's, it, 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 it is representative of the kind of different paths that we have taken compared to a bunch of other countries. But it seems to me so strange that no one or few people, uh, that's why I picked on your column because I was so impressed with it. Uh, I thought back to FDR mm -hmm. and I thought back to his great Commonwealth Club speech and he was talking about saving capitalism, Yes, that the New Deal actually did save it. But not many politicos this year or in recent years have made the point that you make so uh, well. Well, but I, I think in, in, in a way FDR was right. In fact, yesterday an economist from the University of Oregon, Mark Thoma, wrote this great piece. This one was about Hurricane Sandy, but the point that he was trying to make was the same point that you're alluding to, uh, that you need to save capitalism from its excesses and that you know these the idea that government can play a role there is crucial to understand if you know the kind of inequities that build up 
if there is no kind of like countervailing force, could ultimately destroy support for, for, for capitalism. It could destroy the kind of trust that you need for capitalism to function. Do you think um, there was a purpose in President Obama's um, reluctance to pursue this point of view because it wasn't really pursued. Yes, I think I think you're right. Yes, and, and, and it's because you know the this road that we've taken was not just a, 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 did not just come up in in this election. This choice. This is a choice that we've been making over decades. I mean, I would put it back to roughly 1980, where the the idea that government should be smaller started taking hold in the in the political discussion in this country and you know so for a very very long time the main thrust of of you know the political discourse has moved towards smaller government fewer taxes less regulation all these things have been proposed as a good thing conducive to more economic growth to more creativity to more innovation and that's pretty much the road that we've followed at least compared to other countries as an economist, you don't agree with that point of view, do you? Well, it's, it's, it's a road that we chose to take as a democratic society. We could have chosen others. Maybe I would choose another. But it, 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 there, the fact is that I think that the road that we have taken, the, the, the empirical fact, has, I think, produced a bunch of social dysfunctions that had we given government a larger role would not be so dire. So I'm talking about you know, child mortality rates that are very, very high compared to other rich countries, uh, infant mortality rates, mor- maternal mortality rates, uh, teen obesity, uh, uh, birth to teenagers. I mean, we are at the kind of like at the bad end of many, many uh, kind of like social indicators. And it's surprising for a country as rich as ours, as you know, as ultimately very prosperous country in, on, on average, to, to, to show these kinds of dysfunctions. Do you think that the president will now now that he's not a candidate for anything. He's won, after all, the Nobel Peace Prize, so that in his post-presidential years, that's not a possibility or a likelihood. Do you think that the president will push uh, that point of view, that level of understanding? I mean, I would say that the proposal for the health reform uh, effort was a big, a very substantial push in this direction. I mean, there's lots of people that are unhappy at how it ended up, that there are people who wanted uh, uh, the government to be the single provider of health care and would have preferred, a, you know, a solution more like that in, in, in Britain and other European countries where the government provides health care. This was more of a hybrid, but it was a very big push in the direction of government provision of kind of like basic social services. And, you know, I would expect that that would be the thrust of his second term. In terms of the kind of the rhetoric he will use to deliver it, maybe it will be more forceful. Uh, but that's kind of like more of a political analysis that I'm not really very qualified to do. But I do hear that, that maybe the gloves are off and the, you know, the attempt at, at, at being as bipartisan as possible is no longer going to be uh, uh, part of the mix in, in a second administration. But of course, all the things that you mention and you do... Uh go through them in a couple of these articles uh, uh, where we lag behind other capitalist countries, although that's such a different, difficult term to define now. Uh, would you define countries with many more social um, responsibilities acted upon by government capitalists? 
Yes, of course. I mean, these are all market economies. Most economic activities in France or Japan or Canada is in the market between, you know, private individuals and corporations. I mean, the difference between the United States and France is the taxes are about 10% of GDP higher there. I mean, that's really not a really fundamental difference. It's just a question. They raise some, a little bit more money or, you know, if, a lot more money, if you will, and use it to provide a bunch more services. But fundamentally, the, this, these are all capitalist economies. I, don't, I, don't, I think that the argument whether this is socialism or whatnot is more a kind of like a, a political uh, um, um, tool that's used. But it is indeed a political tool that's used, and oh. a rather effective one. Oh, indeed it is, indeed it is, because, you know, again, these are countries that we have tried to define ourselves often in opposition to many of these countries, right? You know, this is a country of individual freedoms as opposed to a country where the state has more of a say over your life. And this isn't, like, said with the kind of nuance that you need to understand and because in a country like Canada, people also have lots of individual freedom, right? They just have slightly more government services, pay slightly more in taxes. Well, I was thinking, too, of uh, another piece that you wrote. I have so many of these, which I have so many questions about because they're so provocative. The one titled, Get What You Pay For, not always, and you go on about the most expensive election campaign in American history is over. Executives across America can now begin to assess what their companies will get in return for the roughly $2 billion spent by business interests. Uh, What do you think that assessment will be? How will it turn out? Well, the immediate assessment will be we lost. It was a waste of money because we lost, right? Uh, most of the money was spent to support Republican candidates or attack Democrats, and Democrats mostly held their own. Uh, so a lot of this money was wasted uh, if, if it was meant to, to provide a winner, right, to buy a winner. But even had they won, I mean, the argument that I make in the piece, I wrote this story before I knew the results, and so my argument was that even had they won, it might be a waste of money from the point of view of, these com- of the co- success of the companies and their shareholders. Well, of course, you make the point, added point, that maybe it was to their detriment. What, do you, what, do you, what did you mean by that? Well, well I, I, there's a couple of ways that this can hurt a corporation, right? I mean, one was, I, I used the example of, of, of Wall Street, which I thought was pretty salient, that they spent a lot of money to help elect President Obama, and then they didn't really like what they got when uh, the financial reform uh, law was passed and, and when President Obama kind of like acquired a more kind of aggressive uh, rhetoric where he labeled banks as, as, as fat cats, bankers as fat cats and so on. So suddenly, and so they flipped to Romney. So the money, presumably that they, they then believed that the money that they'd spent in the 2008 election was not well spent and so now they were going to spend it well. Well, now they lost, so maybe that was not well spent either. But also more broadly, I mean, there's been a lot of analysis suggesting that the kind of that, that this political spending does not really help corporate bottom lines. I mean, people that look at companies who spend on politics versus companies that do not spend on politics, and they try to find out, well, is this spending, you know, does it show up in better profits or higher share prices? It does not. In fact, it often goes the other way. People, companies that spend in, on politics do worse than companies that do not. And I'm, the example in, in the piece that, I, that, that, in the, that you're referring to uh, uh, that I find really kind of very interesting is the story of AT&T. That, right. you know, AT&T goes out and buys a company that pretty much any economist that knew about antitrust law that you talk to would say, this is, deal is going to be 
is going to be uh, rejected by the government because it is buying out your, a clear rival. You're going to reduce competition in this vital market for self, you know, t cellular communications. And yet AT&T went ahead with it and it made these arguments. It was very, very confident. It was so confident that it was going to win that it promised the owner of T-Mobile, because he was going to buy T-Mobile, it promised Deutsche Telekom, who owned T-Mobile, like, I don't know, $6 billion in breakup fees if the deal didn't go through. And the deal didn't go through. And the reason that AT&T was so confident was because of its political clout. I mean, it, it's, it's an enormous, it's one of the biggest uh, political spenders in, in corporate America. And so it has lots and lots of friends on Capitol Hill uh, and in all sorts of streets on Washington. And so it, you know, it kind of like was victim to its own, you know, overconfidence because of the, the you know, the political spend, I believe. But, you know, that very point, when I read the piece, and particularly the way it started out, you know, what, what did you pay for and what did you get? Yeah. I wondered, have, has the other side been just too darn worried about uh, corporate contributions. Well, look, the, the, it's, very, it's difficult to know, right? I mean, if you look at there's also lots of studies that suggest that spending doesn't really change electoral results that much, you know? And this is a lot, stuff that goes back a bunch of years. There's been a lot of work done on this. Does, you know, an extra million dollars spent on this campaign gain it, you know? Or 50 million or by 50, an individual. You know, and, and, and the results that come up are not really... You know, I mean, at, at least not in our history. We, it doesn't show up in elections. And maybe this has to do with the fact that everybody is spending. And so, like, if, maybe if one just stopped spending altogether and the other one spent $50 million, well, then maybe you'd see a difference. But you get this kind of arms race, right, where, you know, each one moves up a notch and the other one moves up a notch. And so it would be the same if nobody spent anything at all. Um, and it's also perhaps because, you know, the electorate isn't that easily swayed. What you do is you convince people who are already believe, you know, all this onslaught of advertising just convinces you of what you already think, but doesn't really change your mind. I mean, I don't know, if you live in Ohio, you were watching, I don't know how many minutes of political ads per hour. And just basically hearing the same thing over and over. Do you think that's really going to, I mean, I'm skeptical. This is not science. This is just my intuition. Uh, counterproductive. You know, yeah, that can be counterproductive, or at least, you know, would have diminishing returns, you know. Do you think my friend Floyd Abrams is going to have to go back to the Supreme Court and argue Citizens United <laughs> from the other side? <laughs> well, that would be an interesting one. I mean, I wonder, I would, I mean, I, this is going to come up again to the Supreme Court, is my, my guess is, in some form. I mean, it seems very, very decisively decided, right? Uh, but I... I suspect this isn't entirely settled. Well, nothing seems to be settled any longer at the level of the Supreme Court. I mean, there is no uh, odd and hidebound stare decisis any longer. Mm -hmm. We can change. There are those who were worried about Roe v. Wade yeah. uh, being overturned, etc. Yeah. Uh, but here I wondered, jokingly, whether corporate America might feel that it would be a lot better off if were not possible to have this arms race. Yeah, well, look, if they were forbidden from having this arms race, they might just save a lot of money and get the same political outcome. Well, that's what you were suggesting. Yeah, you know, so it, it could actually help them out, you know. And you, if you talk to, there are businesses that are very thoughtful about this and have, you know, and have pulled back on spending. And you see, in, in fact, a lot of businesses, after Citizens United, they put, you know, law, you know, rules on their books saying, we're not going to do independent expenditures. You know, these outside groups that spent a lot independently on the election. A lot of that came 
came from individuals rather than companies. Because companies were a little afraid of, you know, giving to whatever, American Crossroads or Action USA or one of those groups uh, because they were kind of like ceding control over their money. Um, and they feared reputation, reputational risk and whatnot. What about that? Do we have any information as to whether any of those fears were justified or concerns perhaps about stockholders? Oh, well, you know, we have had some examples of problems. I don't know if you remember. I mean, this is vaguely in my mind. Target ran into some trouble because it spent to support a group who was... Um, who was spending it to support a candidate for governor who was against gay marriage. And that created a big backlash against Target. There was a, a threat of a boycott, and perhaps it was even a small boycott um, against Target, and Target kind of like, you know, sort of like ultimately ended up changing, passing some specific rules to, um, um, to kind of like guide their political giving, to limit the kind of things that they could do in the political sphere. Do you think a corporation would do that if under the present circumstances where they really don't have to be identified as doing well, what they're doing? That's right. I mean, one of the things is that now they can put money in uh, without anybody knowing about it. Um, well, yes, that will, that will free them from this problem. But if you, I talked to some businesses and they were concerned over an, another, uh, another consideration that they could be blackmailed because the fact that, it's, that this is undisclosed, you know, that you could donate money without telling anybody, it doesn't mean that the person that you're giving money is to isn't going to know. Right. Say more, more, so it more. can say more, more, more under the table, and so you become, you know, the, the corporations were, were afraid that they could just be, you know, blackmailed, extorted into giving into these independent groups. Is there any um, evidence that stockholder groups have uh, taken up the cudgels in this matter? I don't think very aggressively. I mean, this is a young right. rule, right? But you have groups uh, um, like the Conference Board, which groups big businesses that have, they've issued some, some reports expressing concern about the, you know, about Citizens United and the kind of money that it could unleash. So, so there is concern. I don't think it's been, it's, it's come up to like, you know, proxy votes and things like that. Um, um, real pressure against corporation spending. Why do you think the market took such a nosedive <laughs> right after the election? <laughs> you know, I wish I knew. I mean, the, 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 the conventional wisdom is that they're afraid of the fiscal cliff, right? That, the, that this left our politics just as stuck as they were before the election, and hence there's a chance that, the fis- that we will go over the fiscal cliff. Uh, all Taxes will rise, spending cuts will be pretty draconian, and the economy will probably suffer. Do you think the uh, other capitalist countries, marketplace-driven countries, uh, France, Germany in particular, are looking at us and wondering, what are you guys doing? Well, I'm sure they are. Although all these countries right now have problems of their own. You know, Europe is in a tough spot. I mean, Germany is still doing reasonably well, but that's about that's about it. You know, every other European con- economy is in trouble. So they've got, a lot to, they've got a lot of problems of their own at the moment. Um, so it's not like a, a, a moment for great schadenfreude, you know, where they can look at the United States and say, well, what are these, what are these crazy folks doing? Uh, but I bet you they're worried. I mean, because if the United States economy uh, goes south right now, uh, the world is in pretty bad shape, and it would suffer along with us. You know, we are of the rich economies right now. We're one, one of the ones that is growing, you know, faster. I mean, not that we're growing fast, but we're doing better than many others. 
globalization. I keep thinking of your colleague, Tom Friedman, <coughs> who's never been here, and getting him here and saying, well, <coughs> what do you think about globalization? Now, maybe it'd be better if the uh, earth were flat. <laughs> um, you, you wrote a piece uh, not all that long ago, the case for raising top tax rates. Yeah. Uh, what kind of response did you get to that? Oh, a lot of people thought I was crazy because the tax rates that I was talking about in that story were in the 70 to 80 percentile. Uh, but you had good basis in terms of our even recent history. Well, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I, I, would, I would point out two things, that we have had these tax rates in recent history, and in fact, in moments of great economic prosperity, mm -hmm. we've had these tax rates. So the argument that tax rates at this level would destroy the economy um, are not supported by our history, I would say. Um, the other point that I would like to make, too, that kind of like goes against it, is that even when we had these very high tax rates, it's not like we were raising tons more money in taxes. Because we, when we had these very high tax rates, we, all re, we also had lots of more forms to evade them or to avoid them, perhaps is a better word. You know, there were all these tax shelters and whatnot that were also available to people with a lot of money. And so um, even though the tax take, the total amount of tax revenue was higher, it wasn't much, much higher. It wasn't as high as you'd think with a 75% marginal tax rate, right? But basically, the point... That, that, that we can sustain these tax rates without harming the economy is that um, a, a lot of the money at the very, very high end is not necessarily creating wealth. I mean, a lot of this has to do with what's happening to the way that, that income is distributed in this country. A, lot, a growing, growing share has gone to the very, very, very top, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this is a trend that has continued since about 1980 or 19, early 1980s, late 1970s. And while we don't quite entirely understand what has been driving this, there is the sensation that the accumulation of income at the very, very top, you know, the very top, you know, bankers and businessmen and, you know, also some athletes and artists, that does not necessarily conducive to economic growth and that you could tax away some of that without hurting economic growth. Because the standard theory says if you tax away your income, my incentive to go and get more income and be more productive is going to be, you know, attenuated. So I won't put so much effort into it. And hence the economy will grow less. But if a lot of that money there isn't really generating, you know, isn't, is, is really more reshuffling money within the economy rather than producing more wealth, you could tax away more of it and it will do less harm. But, you know, that's a point that <clears throat> puzzles me. Uh, you economic experts, people who write about economics, know that that debate is going on and has been going on in the political arena for some time now. Are there no studies that could confirm or deny the notion that up to a certain point at any rate, taxation will not diminish investment or uh, economic activity at some level? Well, the thing is that the nature of economy, economies are very complex. And so you can put together a study that looks at, you know, how we've had very high taxes and very high growth and how these things are not necessarily uh, in opposition. But you will have somebody who says, well, but, you know, there were something was going on with immigration or something was going on with this other variable. So, you know, the, the, the ability that economists have to clearly state a relationship like the one that you suggest is limited. 
Um, it, you know, it's not physics, even though econ economics would like to be like physics. It's not quite. It does not have these kind of decisive uh, um, um, kind of like uh, conclusions. And so the conclusions are always sort of up for reinterpretation and, 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 uh, and, and counter proposals. So, but I do, I do think that um, we do have pretty substantial evidence that we could raise tax rates and the economy would not, would not tank. But the problem is not really economic, the problem is political. Can you get through the political system? Even though, you know, even though you buy, even though you, you trust this proposition, can you get that proposition through the political system so that the political system accepts these tax rates? And that's when I think that, that we will never get tax rates anywhere near 75% or even 60%, 50%. Do you sigh when you say that, alas? No, I mean, I don't really... See, when we, when we started this conversation, talking about all these other countries that have had more robust kind of like social sectors, public social sectors, these, govern these governments don't really have super high marginal tax rates. What's the difference? Well, then? they actually use very regressive tax systems, so very flat taxation regimes. They use consumption taxes to fund a lot of their government. So consumption taxes, they basically tax you for what you buy. Uh, at very high rates, I mean, there's the, the value-added tax in, in Britain is above 20%, maybe 25%. And um, so this, this, this hits the rich and the poor, you know, and in fact, you can argue it hits the poor more because the poor buy, uh, spend a larger share of their income than the rich. But it actually, you can actually get a lot of money. You can actually generate a lot of tax revenue with these kind of tax systems. So what the European system has done, or uh, um, other systems that use uh, consumption taxes, is we're going to take tax money from everybody, not just the rich. We're going to take a lot of tax money from the middle class and the rich and the poor, and we're going to use this to fund uh, universal services that are going to be probably that are going to be more highly valued by the poor than by the rich because the poor need them more. More next time, and you have to come back and talk further. Thank you so much for joining me Thanks today. very much for having me. It was great. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as an old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now, or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other open mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash open mind.